Life is a canvas. Listen as Dr. Allison R. Tendler and her guests paint the stories of entrepreneurs, executives, and business leaders on her podcast, The Art of Seeing Clearly. Through insightful questions and thought-provoking conversation, Allison and her guests explore the essence of what it means to truly experience life, business, entrepreneurship, love, success, and even failure through a clearer lens. I'm your host, Dr. Allison R. Tendler, board-certified ophthalmologist, surgeon, owner, and CEO of Art Vision and Artisan Skin and Laser Center. I literally get to work every day to help people see better on the 2020 eye chart. But true clarity in life and in business often requires a slightly different kind of vision. I happen to have a passion for learning how other entrepreneurs and leaders find their clarity, and I want to share with you some of their secrets to success. Bob Pizzini is a self-proclaimed, unconventional leadership coach, trainer, public speaker, and lifelong learner. He retired from the U.S. Navy in 2010 after 26 years of service in Navy Special Operations. After wearing our nation's cloth, he helped establish several multi-million dollar businesses. His proven success model draws parallels between military and corporate leadership styles, building and leading a winning team, and precision execution. He has over 30 years of battle-tested principles of leadership in war zones and boardrooms. He understands how to create superior executive-level competency, confidence, and presence. Bob's energy is contagious as he coaches leaders all over the country at all levels in organizations, and he willingly shares his education, training, and most importantly, his experience. He recently published a book entitled Elevate Your Leadership, which we're excited to discuss today. Bob, welcome to the art of seeing clearly. So you spent over 26 years in the Navy and uh, served our country. Number one, thank you very much. Uh, That is amazing. And just reading your book and a little bit about your history, I'm sure there's so much more to to talk about in that. But you're also a Bronze Star recipient. I mean, tell us what you did in Navy Special Ops. So I started out my career as a U.S. Navy deep sea diver, meaning, you know, you picture the big copper helmet, what's called a hard hat. Uh, the Navy calls it a Mark V. That system was Looks like upgraded. you're an astronaut kind of thing. It, yeah, aquanaut, right? Aquanaut, exactly. yeah. So, okay. so, but that that system was upgraded by the time I went to U.S. Navy dive school in 1985. But okay. U.S. Navy divers are trained in all the breathing mediums, uh, all the deep sea diving um, equipment to essentially do whatever the government needs done um, at any depth uh, in any ocean anywhere in the world. And uh, we, we, one of our sayings is U.S. Navy divers, we explore the ocean floor. But I started my career as a U.S. Navy diver. While I was a Navy diver, I discovered what's called Navy EOD or Explosive Ordnance Disposal. And Navy EOD techs think bomb tech, right? Cut the red yes, wire. but underwater? Uh, underwater, on the surface, okay. in Iraq, in Afghanistan, um, in the, the underwater in the, in the Dardanelles Straits, uh, Straits of Malacca over in Asia. I mean, all over the place. So, so, and that's what's unique about Navy EOD compared to other services is we, we have the mobility skills to, to literally go anywhere on surface, underwater, in the air and uh, search, locate, identify, and defeat or disable explosive devices. So how long in your Navy career were you doing that? Because that's going to be like high adrenaline. And when you're in it, it's it's a lot of probably practice to be in that situation. And then uh, um, a, a lot of adrenaline when you're in the situation, or maybe not. No, when- there is. Um, so... So I I did so I was a deep sea diver for for six years before I went to Navy EOD school. E, EOD school is about a year long, okay, twelve hour, twelve hour days um, uh, throughout the entire year. But uh, so so I was a, a Navy EOD tech for about twenty years of my military career. In terms of the energy and the adrenaline, um, it's it's a necessary part of the job, but you also have to be able to control it. Uh, when yeah. when when myself or my teammates. Uh, when we approach an explosive device, large or small, terrorist or conventional or in a permissive environment or a non-permissive environment, there could be um, a gunfight going on at the time, a firefight. You know, you have to 
take that adrenaline and harness it and focus it on the objective. It's really quite that simple. And, and that's one of the things I think we learn, not directly, there's not a module in EOD school called, called harnessing your adrenaline, but throughout the, the duration of the program, I think it's something that we learn and we, we become very good at. So how does that relate? I'm going to jump bringing that forward a little bit. How does that relate to what we as leaders can be doing better? Is that a skill that you find transferable to present day age and what you're um, encouraging and teaching people to do? Without a doubt. And, and, and it manifests itself in several ways. One would be first what I call the, the state of mono, right? How How is this adrenaline? How is this situation affecting me right now? And what is my response going to be? What's the appropriate response? And, you know, am I, am, am I reserved? Am I calm? Am I thinking clearly? And is what I'm about to say or do appropriate? Is it, is it, is it appropriate to the situation? Is it moral, ethical, and legal? You know, those are the things that you have to quickly, but then in the stereo or what I call stereo, um, talk about this in your book as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You have to consider the state of mind of the person or people that you're dealing with. Are they agitated? Are they excited? Uh, you know, excited in a positive or negative way? Are they are they highly energized? Are they, you know, really, really stoked about what's about to happen? Or are they really afraid of about what's about to happen? So um, so so you have to consider all these things from a leadership perspective. And, um, and and then, you know, you can make your decision and you can react appropriately. Many times leaders have this this monocular view or this this monovision. And, you know, when when somebody says, hey, I didn't get a good night's sleep last night, you know, m- most leaders, their knee jerk response is, well, that's not my problem. Well, if that person has a very important job, especially when it comes to disarming explosives, that's- I would consider that to be my problem. <laughs> yeah. That leads me into a question. I'm. Moving forward a little bit, but you, you know, talk about the health of your team and how that's important in the business or being a leader, an entrepreneur. You can you can take that from the military, but in in our businesses now, you talk a lot about the the health and wellness of the team. And one of the things you mentioned was being being tired. So I think we miss out on that a lot. We, you're exactly right. It's like, oh, I didn't sleep well. It's like, all right, well, uh, why should we care? Yeah. So again, strictly from a leader's perspective or a leadership perspective, leaders have a tendency and there's studies and I won't cite study after study, but leaders who are not well rested have a tendency to be impatient and make decisions that they later regret. You know, the old, what was I thinking type of thing. And in extreme cases, they can act uh, in ways that are immoral, unethical, and perhaps illegal. Um, Again, that lack of sleep, that lack of rest, that lack of recharging the brain uh, creates a condition of cloudiness or fog, to to put it quite simply, and you're not on your A-game. And if you recognize you're not on your A-game, or if you recognize that the people you're working with or you're relying on, that they're not on their A-game, then you can respond appropriately. That's a that was a huge aha moment, and I hope we can speak on that a little bit more on how the health and well being of our of our team members makes a big difference in us and of ourselves um, makes For a sure. big difference in how effective um, we are as leaders and what an amazing team we can have. So, when did you start diving? You started uh, diving before you even went to the military. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I grew up watching the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau, and <laughs> you know, and and you know, I'm 57 years old, so my daughter was... wants to be a fish doctor, so I'm not sure, you know. <laughs> wow, okay. Never seen Jacques, you know, Cousteau, but yeah, well, maybe she can answer the age-old question of do fish get thirsty? So I don't know, but um, <laughs> but I, so I started we're when all I was dehydrated, a kid. right? Except they live in the water. So. so exactly. We're always in a state of dehydration. I always have my water handy. And I talk about that in the book. But but I started diving when I was 12 years old, just this interest okay. in all things underwater, the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau and uh, uh, dove throughout high school and knew in high school that I wanted diving to be part of my livelihood or, you know, I wanted to I wanted that to be my profession at some point. 
And then while I was in high school, I discovered this, this job description called U.S. Navy Deep Sea Diver. And that was pretty much it. I was focused on that uh, from that point forward. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, at 19 years old, I graduate U.S. Navy Dive School in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, uh, having walked on the ocean floor at 190 feet, looking up through my diving helmet and being able to see my, my teammates uh, tending my air hose. You know, I can see them leaning over the side of the boat. The water was so, so crystal clear and beautiful out there. But, uh, but that, that put in motion what turned out to be a 26-year career. So, yeah, the, the high interest as a kid. Dove throughout since I was 12 years old, really all around the U.S. and and just enjoyed every minute of it. So you also had some setbacks before you got to that stage. So tell me about a setback that you might have had <laughs> early on that 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 challenged that. And then maybe you know as you're as you're going through, I might ask you also a, a you know a present day challenge that. This is how I get through that using some of my leadership skills, tactics, methods that I have I've learned. Sure. So the biggest setback I would say in relative to, you know, your profession was the eye test that I took. Um, I when did I listened, catch that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, when when so I enlisted. What, what happened at that moment when here's your dream? And yeah. Yeah. When I enlisted to be a Navy diver, there was no guarantee. You went to boot camp and then you took the physical tests, the running, the swimming, the push-ups, the sit-ups, the pull-ups. And if you made it through that, then you went to medical and took the physical exam. When I took the eye test, they said that my vision was not good enough to be a Navy diver. And I was 18 years old at the time, and I didn't know what to do, if there was any resolve. And it was it was really crushing for me. It was a uh, it was a defining moment, I guess you could say, in my life, and it was not a positive defining moment. It was one of um, uh, just, you know, hopelessness, really, because what I wanted to do was crushed in a second, you know, as, as quickly and nonchalantly as as the person who gave me that eye test yeah. gave the eye test and said, sorry, you're disqualified. Next, you know, move on. That really uh, presented a challenge for me. Anyway, um, I, I did what's called reclassification and I went through some, some additional training and I was in the Navy for about another six months or so. And I went and took another eye test and lo and behold, I, I, uh, passed this test or my, my vision <laughs> yes. was up to standards. I have no idea how that happened, but it happened. And I was able to attend Navy dive school almost immediately after it was really remarkable how quick that happened, how quick things went at that point. Very interesting. Well, there are, there are always, you know, challenges, setbacks, struggles. Um, any challenge you had when you quote unquote retired, um, you know, people always retire from the military, but they never really retire. Any challenges or difficulties you faced at that time of trying to figure out like, hey, what should, what do I, what do I do now? Yeah, so that is a, a a very typical issue with people retiring, especially people in in special operations, because yeah. our skill sets typically um, are very unique to the military. And for a long time, we didn't think that it really applied at large in the private sector. Um, I would say in the last ten years or so, uh, military special operations, so Army Green Berets and Air Force Pararescue and combat controllers and Navy divers and Navy EOD techs, um, we have all or processes have been developed to translate our skills into the private sector. And it turns out there's a huge demand for what we do in the private sector. A, a lot of it is along the lines of leadership, but also um, program management. You know, we have the ability to accomplish an objective that seems um, insurmountable when initially presented. And our mentality is we is we will obtain the resources, we'll obtain the manpower, we'll obtain whatever it is we need to accomplish this objective. And, you know, until our leader says, I'll stop, you know, no, no, no more, no more uh, pursuing that objective, uh, we go after everything 100%. And I think that's a redeeming quality. And I think that the private sector has recognized that quite a bit. So in my case, when I made the transition, you're right, you never really retire, so to speak. And when I made the transition, um, I was associated with a group of people who had gone before me, who had established uh, very successful businesses and 
Um, I was very lucky and fortunate and beneficial to go work for people that I've already known for 25 years mm. and um, walk right into um, a, a position that I was very familiar with in terms of the technicalities. But at the same time, I was trying to learn how to spell the word business so I could establish my own business. What did you want that to be? What was your goal? That was the that was I fly Virginia Beach. That is um, that was yeah. your that was your your original goal. Yeah, it, exactly. And it just took a long time. And you know, out of all the the <laughs> really awesome things that that we do throughout our military careers, reading profit and loss statements and balance sheets and applying for multi million dollar bank loans, that's not something that we generally do in our military career. But we don't get trained to do that as physicians either. Yeah. So there's 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 none of that. So <laughs> so it so, so, scares a lot of people from even thinking they can. Because unless they've had a, a background with their family or, you know, right. someone in their family was a, a successful business owner, you have no, no knowledge, no training, no education. And it's a foreign language. So I, I can see that with you as well. Yeah, it is. and But that's one of the other things that the military taught me, especially in Navy EOD, being a Navy bomb tech. I mean, nuclear weapons are part of our area of responsibility. So there's some pretty complex mathematics involved there. And, and I only bring that up to say that we know how to learn. We can learn complex things quickly. That's a requirement to get through the one-year curriculum of EOD school. So um, with that confidence, I put myself through this kind of business 101 course. You're which like, I led- got this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I know how to learn, right? I mean, it's a challenge. I, I, I'm going to figure it out. Then there are people yeah. around me. Yeah. Now I'm not going to do eye surgery, right? I'll I'll uh, pass on that one. But you just have to be trained. Yeah, and give it the time, right? The the five yeah. years or so, um, yeah. the apprenticeship. I think Malcolm Gladwell says ten thousand hours, which is about five years, and that's about what it takes to to master whatever it is you're you're pursuing. So what was it about iFly that had caught your attention that you wanted to use to, you know, I'll say, what's your passion with that? Yeah. So quite simply, my last job in the military was to facilitate um, what what we call sustainment and advanced training for all things airborne and all things diving for um, for the Navy's uh, East Coast EOD forces. So roughly, I think, 1,200 or so uh, EOD operators. And in the airborne role, we would go to these vertical wind tunnels in different parts of the country. And, and it's a simulator at the end of the day, right? You simulate the freefall portion of a military freefall, a military jump. And that can be very complex because you have 30, you know, up to 30 or more people exiting the aircraft within 10 seconds of each other. So you're all literally uh, just running off the tailgate or exiting out of the side doors of the aircraft. And it's very quick. And it's at night usually, and it's at a very high altitude, and it's very cold. Um, so again, a very complex undertaking. So in order to really become competent at that freefall phase, we would use these vertical wind tunnels to master the skill of freefall. In a vertical wind tunnel, the feedback is immediate. If mm-hmm. I'm tracking forward, uh, you run into glass. If I'm tracking backwards, you run into glass. So you know... Um, very quickly, you know, what your skill set is. And, and more importantly, you really hone your free fall skill and you really advance your free fall skill very quickly. So that's what I did. Uh, we would we would travel to different parts of the country and we would lease these facilities. And while we were there, we would see the private sector um, customer base. We would see mom, dad, and the kids. We would see the 18-year-olds on a date, uh, the 40-year-old parents on date night out, the families the birthday parties, you know, all the other aspects, all the other fun that that this uh, vertical wind tunnel offers. And we would always come back to Virginia Beach. Have you been to Virginia Beach? I have not. Okay. All right. Well, uh, you have an invitation. If you ever find yourself in this area, you're welcome to come and fly at I Fly Virginia Beach as my guest. You Thank your, you. Amen. Yeah. Sounds super fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, you and you and your daughter, you and your family. That's the beautiful thing is uh, really when we see children do this. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. Kids as young as three can do it. And, you know, those young kids are generally bulletproof and fearless and they yeah. just do a great job every single oh. time. It's the cutest thing in the world. But anyway, we would see this business model in other parts of the country. We would also see all the other special operations units that are headquartered in Virginia Beach at these other locations. And so always on the flight back or the drive back, we would say, wow, why doesn't somebody open one of these in Virginia Beach? And um, so eventually I I, I did, and it took six years from 
good idea till the till the day we opened our doors and everything in between. And uh, so that's how it developed. Now I am, you know, I was a military freefall skydiver, and I am still an active skydiver. And um, uh, so besides the military aspect, we train civilian skydivers. But again, you don't have to be a skydiver. This is an amusement activity. It's a recreational activity, and it's a sport. You can kind of look at it like 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 um, ice skating or playing hockey, you know, figure skating. You can figure you can go ice skating with your daughter like once or twice a year, and it's just an amusement. It's something to do on a Sunday afternoon. You could go every Sunday, and now it just became a recreational activity. Or you could say, hey, we're going to take figure skating lessons or hockey lessons. And now it's now, a sport. Now it's a sport, and it's the exact same uh, theory inside that I want to be better at. And this little movement causes this to happen. And you really start to hone in on, on how your mind and your body work. Um, exactly. At yeah, those times. Exactly. What's, what's one of the, you know, hardest lessons that you've ever had to learn and how has that helped you move forward? Wow. Like you've had, you know, you've had so many experiences and I'm sure, I'm not sure something pops to your head and it could be post-military, it could be during the military, but what's an experience that you had like, wow, that set me up to be better here? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'll give you I'll give you one for each. I'll give you one during my military career and I'll give you one post-military. So during my military career, and there were many, there were many, but the one that oh, sticks sure out, the one that really sticks out with me the most is um, I was uh, at a point in my career, r- relatively early in my career, where I had a large amount of responsibility, um, more than than I would say most people who had you know that amount of time in the military at that point. I had a lot of responsibility. And so my boss, my commanding officer, had a lot of confidence in me and he trusted, I was his trusted advisor, but I was also um, the person who executes the mission. I'm out on the water or out on the, wherever the uh, location is and executing the mission. And one day he gave some some last minute direction, if you will. And the direction was very clear. And I chose not to abide by that direction. Uh, on that particular day, what I what I told my team was, we're going to follow that order starting tomorrow. And when we went out and executed the operation, um, not not in accordance with uh, with the commanding officer's directive, things didn't go properly. And uh, I was called to the carpet, as we say in the military. Um, and, uh, you know, the the All I can I, think of is Top Gun when, you know, you know, they get <laughs> called in and they get yelled at after their flyby. So something like yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, it was something like that. Actually, it was I, I really have to give my commanding officer credit because he made it much more painful than that. Um, he told me to stay away for three days. Like, we've got to look into this and we have a decision to make. You go here and we don't need to see you until we get a hold of you. That wound up being three days. So that was three days for me to really think about the decision I made. And it was a very. Like, so nobody got hurt, nobody this or that. But how have you used that now to like that changed how I think about these? Yeah. So, so, so the summary there is I let my boss down when somebody has that high degree of trust and confidence in you. And, and I, I just wasn't as conscious of that high degree of trust and confidence as I should have been. Uh, for whatever reason, but but the lesson there is, um, I let my boss down, and and his response was more disappointment for being let down than being angry or you know I'm going to kill you or or I'm going to ruin your career or anything like that. You know, he was like, "How does this person who is my number one performer um, not you know not follow my directive?" And uh, so the lesson learned was letting somebody down. And I didn't consider the gravity of the situation, and I made a decision that let my boss down. And um, and uh, no matter how big or small, and you're right, no no lives were lost in this case. Right. It was what we call a high risk operation. There was you know danger involved, but um, but anyway. So so now um, you know the lesson for me is if there's any deviation to anything that's already been agreed upon, we have to discuss that whether I'm on whether I'm executing on behalf of somebody else or someone, somebody's executing on my behalf. Uh, once we slap the table and say, here's how we're going to execute, um, there's no deviation. And if if we have to deviate, we have to discuss that. So that's- What's your determinant on whether you're going to be lenient and be 
disappointed or more angry and like you're done. Sure. Point or like no, we feel like all leaders should kind of have this mantra. Or is there a difference in a situation depending upon your relationship? Yeah, I think you're really. I think that question is the most important question that leaders have to ask themselves when a situation comes up. And in in my case, back when I was on active duty and I and I made that mistake, uh, when I when I went and talked to my commanding officer, I owned it right away. And I wish I, I could start that day over again. I love that. So it's even you know, something simple might happen in the office and I'm like, own it. Tell me about it. And there's a lot more grace and forgiveness if you. Exactly. That's me, exactly like, right. Here's, and here's why it's not going to happen again. Yeah, no, that's exactly do, right. Try to make sure it doesn't happen again. I'm like, you've got all the grace and the, you know, that, that, that builds up a lot of that trust in that respect. Yeah, no, it really does. And so, you know, in that case, that was me owning my mistake, uh, you know, to to make amends with my boss. But now I have 40 employees and it's the same thing when when they have make that mistake, if they come in and own it, it's so easy to get beyond it. You know, we acknowledge the mistake. We we identify what we can do better and then we go execute. We go do better. And uh, and so that's that's really um that's the key thing. And I write about that a little bit. There's, there's, you know, we all have ego and ego can lead us towards pride and pride leads us towards uh, leading with our heart and with high moral and ethical character. And ego can also lead us towards self-interest. And I acted in, on that day that I told you about when I was still in uniform, I acted out of self-interest and self-interest can take us down a very destructive path. And self-interest is okay, but it's not the priority when you are part of a larger organization. Number one, the good of the organization. Number two, the good of the, your team and your teammates. And self-interest comes sometime after that. So um, so if people can put their self-interest aside, own their mistakes, act in the best interest of the organization and their teammates then it's easy to get beyond issues and issues are actually minimized if people are really genuine in that capacity. I know we still will get to the, you know, like hardest lesson you've learned since that time. I'm going to come back to that, but this this talk about team and self, Um, you, you speak about, you know, tearing down yourself in order to create a team. That's true. I believe in the military standpoint, how do you translate that into our civilian world? And being an entrepreneur. Sure. Now, I will say it's much more difficult in the civilian world, in the private sector, because... To create a team, isn't it? Yeah. yeah it, no, it really is. Because yeah. in the military, you know, everybody, when you go to boot camp, you all get your head shaved. You all throw your civilian clothes. If I like black shirts, it goes in a bin. So that you, sense of self is gone. That sense of self is gone. And now you're all wearing the same thing. You all look alike and you're identified by a number more than anything else. So, um, so, so knowing when to, you know, let yourself and your ego kind of go and really become one with the rest of the team is, is, is important. Uh, it's an important component of leadership and it's important for you to really know when it's, when those situations present themselves and when they're critical and, and how you do that with your teammates is, is, um, it, 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 it's it, there's not a you can't apply, um, you know, one size fits all or one situation applies to everybody because, you know, I have a woman in her, um, we'll say late 30s, who's my chief marketing officer. And then I have a youngster who's 18 years old, still in high school. And how I approach uh, each of them um, to make sure that we're really focused on the good of the organization, and the good of the team is is different. And, and leaders have to recognize that you do have to approach uh, thing, not everything, but certain things you had, you know, the, this, this woman who's been in the professional, in the, in the working world for 15 or 20 years, um, it's really incumbent on me to recognize her experience and her professionalism and, and her, her mastery, so to speak, of her craft and really kind of coach and mentor uh, her and in, in what she's doing, as opposed to that 18 or 20 year old who's just entering the workforce, really training is the priority for that person. Train them to become proficient at whatever it is you hired them to do. Um, and then we go into coaching from there. 
um, get them beyond proficiency at the skill set and make sure they're working good with their teammates. They have, um, uh, you know, they're empathetic and they have a good approach to to the concept of team. And, um, you know, and then then evolve from there. Coaching can turn into mentoring eventually. So so it's a lot different. It's one on one. But I will say this in the military, you can't fire people per se, but in the private sector, you can. And and I, do not, I don't say. Do, oh, do you not tend to know pretty quick, Bob, who's going to be a good team member and who's not? Um. To the 95% level, I would say yes. And we've really, we've really refined our interviewing process. Um, when we interview, we're just looking for moral and ethical character. Yeah. We'll teach you how to be a flight instructor. We'll teach you how to do all the other things that are done within the organization. But we need people to come through the door with good moral and ethical character, a good work ethic, uh, somebody who's willing to do whatever the team needs to be done, yes. uh, as opposed to that's not in my job description. You know, if if we hear that, your days are numbered and um, and that's all there is to it. It's I don't wish you'll will on anybody, but this team has a dynamic that has requirements. And if you're not willing to meet those requirements, then go someplace where, you know, what you want to do is is more appropriate. Oh, hey, amen. Our first uh, value that we list is team accountability. So it talks about team and then and then, of course, accountability to to uh, self team clients, patients and the business. All yeah. right. So hardest yeah. lesson you learned after in the civilian world What's one of so, the that you've learned that's like, hey, this really changed my mindset. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's the old adage, um, hire slow, fire fast. And in my case, I didn't fire fast in in a, in a few occasions. And I, I talk in the book about performance versus behavior. So when you have a really high performing person, it's it's um, kind of easy to overlook behavioral deficits. Yes. I, I shouldn't even say overlook them. You really don't even notice them, you know. And and you're just focused on that performance. And and you know, then other people point out some of the behavioral deficits and. And, and for me, I was like, well, you know, you know, this person's doing such a great job and, you know, we can, we'll work on that. We'll retrain that. We'll get the behavioral thing, whether it's showing up on time or being a teammate or, you know, some other things, we'll work on that. What I discovered is, uh, especially if somebody is a young adult or beyond is you really there, you can't work on that. And, um, when people don't have that rock solid moral and ethical character that affects everybody else on the team. And, um, and I didn't pay attention to that. Uh, again, that great performance was kind of blinding me. But uh, when I finally let that person go, uh, things changed immediately for the better. And there were one or two other people that needed to go, and they did. And, um, and then we got in new teammates. Again, we changed our interviewing process. Four corners of the resume don't matter. What matters is moral and ethical character. So, so the lesson there is as tough as it is, and it's tough to take somebody who's generally doing their job very well and say, I'm sorry, but you don't fit in with this team. You have to go. So yes. that was my, that was my big lesson. I, in the I think sector. all of us as, as entrepreneurs and business people have, if we're truthful, have dealt with that before and it's not easy. And it sometimes either, as you said, takes longer than it probably should um, do you have a question that you ask now that helps you helps guide you? Like, hey, here's my key, here's my key interview question. We all want uh, to know. So. Yeah, uh, we have a couple of them, and and it's I'm I'm really glad you asked that because with my management team, I have six people on the management team, and these are things we discuss pretty regularly. But um, so uh, we're a customer serving organization, so we have our our storefront, if you will, and people come in the front door and they can purchase from retail. They have the flight activity, they purchase gift certificates and they do other things, but they also go and use the restroom. And sometimes they make a terrible mess in the restroom. And as, when we have 120 customers in the building, whether they're checking in, they're in the flight chamber, they're in the classroom getting ready to go, or they're in retail because they just finished. When somebody makes a mess out of a bathroom, it has to be cleaned right away. And there can be no debate about who's going to get in there and do it. So the question we ask is, okay, you're here to be a flight instructor. Everybody loves you. You're a rock star. You're, you're great in the flight chamber. When that 12 year old goes in the bathroom and makes a terrible mess, are you going to have any hesitation going in there and cleaning it up? And um, that's kind of <laughs> as basic and that's simple as it sounds. Mentality question. It's the benchmark. Yeah. It, it yeah. really is. 
So absolutely, uh, we we talk about that too. It's like you know you have to look at this bathroom like somebody's coming to your home, going to use your bathroom. How do you want to present yourself? Well, here's how we present ourselves. I don't care what's what's going on. That's exactly right. And, and I'm just as happy to get in there and do it myself. If 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 I'm in the area and they say, "Boss, we need your help with this," I'm on it. No problem. Oh, thanks for thanks for sharing. I think that those are wise wise words and still good <laughs> guidance. That no matter what your business, um, small, large, whatever the industry is, we deal with a lot of similar you know similar things. Um, for sure. With, within our days. So let's, let's um, talk. I mean, you've, you've done so many things. I mean, you coach, um, you're a CEO, you speak, you are a, an author. What do you love most about what you do? Like oh, what like wow. fills your cup at the yeah. end of the day? Like, yeah. This, this um, energizes me. So uh, w- without a doubt, uh, coaching hockey, um, when I see my, the, the, the kids, I call them kids, but they're high school. You know, most of them are going to graduate this year, including I call my, some of my patients, kids too. So, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so I hesitate to call them kids, but I've been with most of them since they were, you know, youngsters and to see them achieve, to see them grow, to see them have confidence, to see them execute a skill on the ice that they've been working on for years and they finally figured it out. And now they do it with confidence that's wonderful to see. Same thing in raising. I, I have twins, a, a boy and a girl, and they're 18 years old. And so to see them um, kind of focus and have a goal and then achieve the goal, no matter how large or small, you know, those are the those are the cup filling moments for me at, at this point. And, you know, my mission right now in life is to help others accomplish their objectives. My definition of leadership is enabling others to accomplish their objectives. And that's while I'm in the seat as a CEO, but it's while I'm on the ice as a hockey coach and it's while I'm at home as a father and while I'm volunteering my time with the Chamber of Commerce and, you know, wherever else I can be of use to others. To help that organization, that person, that team reach their objective. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's exactly awesome. Right. So <laughs> that kind of, kind of leads us into your book, you know, Elevate Your Leadership. Um, what prompted you to write yeah, what was, the, what was kind of the nightest to say, like, I, I need to get these words on paper. Yeah. So um, I have a bad habit of undertaking things that I'm not very familiar with, but they just seem like a cool thing to do. And I, I've really been doing it like, uh, you know, since, <laughs> since my early teens. And, um, uh, you know, when I was three or four years into my business, again, six people on my leadership team. I, I wanted leadership development or what we in the military, we call it professional development or pro dev. I wanted pro dev for, for my leadership team. And I sent them to some of the leadership offerings in our area that were available. And I even went myself and they were good, but they were not kind of the, the real bare bones, basic, this is what leadership is all about that I learned in the military. So I put together my own kind of curriculum for my, my management team. Um, and and, and we did it kind of together. Like I put it together and I said, hey, I'm going to present this. If you guys think it's stupid and garbage, you tell me and it's gone and we'll figure something else out. But when I when I gave the initial presentation, um, it was very well received. And they were like, wow, where's this been? And, you know, except for this part over here, you kind of put us to sleep. You know, probably shouldn't talk about that. But um, but so that turned into this course offering. People outside the organization saw what I was doing and they said, man, that is really something you should take to the market because it's different and it's unique. It's based on my 30 years, my 26 years in the military. And then, you know, at that point, 10 years in the private sector. And I just took all my lessons learned and developed my my philosophy or my processes, you know, whatever you want to call it. And um, your science uh, and your art. Yeah, the art and that's exactly right. The art and science and in uh, the way I define and apply the art, very different than what you're going to learn in, you know, one of the business schools. And the way I define and apply the science is way different than anything you're going to learn in a business school. And as you know, and as you know, for me, the science is physiological. It's rest, hydration, I- nutrition. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell us about the. I think this is fascinating. So, I really want to hone in on this for a moment. So, uh, in your, you know, in your training, in your speaking, you talk about the art of leadership, which I think we've been talking about a little bit in general and hitting on some of those points. But the science of leadership is something I really feel that is is very unique that doesn't get talked about 
a lot. Some people talk about, yes, I mean, little aspects of meditation or I go for my run or I make sure I do this, but your, your distinct, you know, six components of that science of leadership, I think uh, people will really be interested to hear about. So what are those? Sure. So the, the six components are, are the things that, that, um, that I have put together that, that I say make up the general leadership law. They are rest, hydration, nutrition, exercise, brain and heart link or brain and heart health and lifelong learning. And um, in the book, I have a graphic and I express those six things as a Venn, meaning they all touch each other and they all impact each other. So if I'm not well rested and I'm not well hydrated and I'm not well nourished, my exercise will not benefit my brain and heart um, as much as it would if I if I was well um, well hydrated, well nourished, uh, etc. So so all those those six things: rest, hydration, nutrition, exercise, brain and heart link, and lifelong learning. If one of those goes up, if one of those improves, it will positively affect the other five. If one of those is degraded, if I'm dehydrated. That's going to have a negative impact on everything else, on my rest and on my nutrition and on my exercise and my brain and heart link. And, you know, this is not new in terms of science. Actually, some of it is neuroplasticity and some of the brain functions, relatively new, 10 years, 12 years or so. But but this is not something that leaders pay any attention to at all. Um, I recently oh. spoke to this to this wonderful um, fitness coach and he, you know, uh, Academy Award winners and Fortune 100 CEOs. I mean, this guy's clients are people who are um, very well-to-do. And self-care, fitness, uh, uh, mental health and wellness is number 10 on their list. You know, they'll do it and it's on their list, but they'll do it when they get to it. And who gets to number 10 on their list during the day? You know, <laughs> we usually get through one through three. Yeah. I find fascinating, even, you know, you just said, if you can hit one of these and make one of these even better, the other ones will, you know, will follow and hopefully come up too. And to be a leader to like, if you're not well rested, if you haven't been eating well, if you haven't treated your body well, if you haven't been like, and then that might negatively impact your interactions with your team, or it might negatively impact how you react or respond. We talked a little bit about that before in a, in a situation. And mm-hmm. someone might think like, or, you know, take a, take a two-year-old who hasn't had those things as well. They're not going to respond and do as well. They're going to be example. like, well, that's a sour child, but maybe they just needed sleep and good nutrition and, you know, needed like, this was kind of so simple yet mind blowing for me to think about as yeah. far as leadership and team goes. Yeah, it's huge. And it's, it's something that throughout my entire professional life, you know, so, so for me, physical activity, what we call PT or physical training, right? Exercise. It's been part of my daily, um, my daily routine for my entire adult life, minus periods of injury or, you know, certain deployments and things like that. And when I don't get that, I'm, my mood is altered. My, my, my positive energy is altered. My, my, my concept of my physical capability is altered. You know, all of those things are negatively impacted and, um, you know, your brain and your heart communicate with each other millions of times a day. And that brain and heart link is really the most important aspect of who you are. It controls emotion. It controls, it controls, you know, pulse rate and blood pressure and digestion and everything that goes into the way you, what's called executive function, right? And, and I break that down to simply how clearly do I see? How clearly do I hear and how how clearly do I think? And um, rest, hydration, nutrition, exercise, et cetera, those things are critical to that. So again, mono stereo, right? How am I doing today? Am I well rested? If I have a tough decision to make and it's not coming to me and I feel a little foggy, I should probably not make that decision. Maybe I can hold off till tomorrow. Maybe I need to get some of my trusted advisors in to, you know, give me a sanity check. Um but but I have to recognize that within myself. And then stereo, you have to recognize that in the people uh, that you're working with or that you're negotiating with. You have to really um, try and try and get them at their best. And if they're not at their best, recognize that and adjust your expectations appropriately. So I remember listening to a, a uh, podcast with you uh, earlier and uh, 
It was on the the hydration portion in the morning. So can you share that with our listeners? I, yeah. And, and this is like, I have like, this is amen. I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is this. So tell us what that is. So, so it's 16 ounces of water first thing in the morning. What's amazing about this, when you read books on depression and, you know, different medical books and books on health and wellness and nutrition, it's in all the books. Why does nobody know this? Why didn't I learn this until I was like 55 years old? Um, hydration. So when we sleep, we dehydrate, right? We fast. And um, when we get up and when we wake up in the morning, the first thing we want to do is break the fast by rehydrating, by drinking water. So in most of the books, most, most uh, um, health healthcare professionals recommend 16 ounces of water. And it, immediately it lubricates your spine, it awakens your mind, and it activates your digestive system. Now, lubricate spine for me is very important because I've, I've uh, you know, I've had back surgery, and back surgery and I have lower back problems, but awakens the mind. And I don't want to get too crazy scientific here, but there's something called your cortisol awakening response or CAR. When you wake up first thing in the morning, most of us go, got to have my coffee, you know, get, wake up and get alert. Really, what you want to have is water, 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 water facilitates the cortisol release. I was raising so, my hand there. I'm like, ooh, I'll take my coffee. But since I've listened to you now, it's like, OK, at least drink your water first and then have your coffee. Exactly. And that's what I do. Exactly. Because when you when when you feel that alertness and that energy 30 to 60 minutes after awakening, it's if you've hydrated, it's the cortisol uh, that is, that is really creating the alertness and the energy and, and what some people call a peak state. Um, now coffee brings up your blood pressure and your heart rate and everything else, but, but really that water. So anyway, 16 ounces of water, first thing in the morning, it is a game changer. It's a life changer. When I learned it, I was like, wow, so simple. And then yeah. I'll tell you the other thing about water real quick. Most people don't know how much water they should drink every day based on body weight. And even if they do know that, they don't gauge, they don't meter. So they don't know how much they actually do drink every day. So 95% of people are walking around in a state of dehydration. It's that simple. Dehydration is almost like hunger, right? Your body is craving something. Um, your brain is craving something that's going to make it function more efficiently and more effectively. So so the math on uh, hydration, um, you have to buy the book to... Uh, to get that, but um, it's not, it's not terribly I complex. I won't, I won't share it either, but it is quite simple. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. Everybody who, you know, travels with their water bottles around them, you know, they should know exactly how much, how that's much. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Amen and, to those people. And these, these characteristics, whether it's the art or the science of leadership also, you know, it, it is all being disciplined. It's being disciplined in a habit. You know, as a leader, you have to be disciplined. You have certain things with your team. You talk about that. Um, is there ever a time for you, Bob, that you feel like, yeah, I, I wasn't that disciplined? And how did that impact you? Sure. Uh, so that happens. And it actually happens you know, more often than one would think. Um, we're all human. And leadership is imperfect. And no matter who you are, and how experienced you are, we still make mistakes. And I, um, and I think for me, when I make those mistakes, number one, own it. Number two, um, realize the imperfection of it, you know, and, and again, if, you're, if your intent is well-placed, forgive yourself and, and move on. Um, I think that's very important. And um, uh, again, if you can do that for yourself, then you can do that for others. You can recognize that in others. Mm-hmm. Very good. In you know, you you've been in the the Navy. You you know maybe want to tell us a sea story or two. Do you have a sea <laughs> story that you can share with us? You're like it's one of my most memorable sea stories. Uh, well, I'll give you one. It's actually a uh, so so I'm a sailor, and sailors like to tell sea stories for sure. And um, so you sail uh, you sail still. Uh, so you skydive, you water, you dive, you fly, you like what don't you do? Um, I haven't, uh, I haven't like knitted. Um, it's never so. too late to learn. It's a good skill use of your hands. 
It's impressive to see some of the things people make. It's incredible. So my favorite. Somebody, little, somebody send Bob some knitting needles and some <laughs> yarn. My, my favorite blanket at home is Nana's Afghan. So uh, my wife's grandmother knitted me this Afghan a whole bunch of years ago, and I love it. And I'm just impressed with with the fact that somebody can do that. So, yes. <laughs> um, so you know, Sea Story, um, I think the one I shared earlier, you know, obviously that's the most impactful or what I call a defining moment. Don't yeah. don't let uh, those who trust you down and, um, or, you know, take it very serious. But but one other one um, that sticks with me, there's there's several and there's a lot of different flavors. But uh, one that sticks with me was a training uh, parachute operation that I was on and it was a night jump. And uh, there was uh, I want to say about 20 of us exiting the aircraft. And I was actually one of the instructors on this particular jump. So I was the last person to exit the aircraft. And uh, as as the uh, as the flight path developed, and by the time we exited the aircraft, we were late exiting the aircraft. So the drop zone uh, was was nowhere in sight. At night, we have these little markers, a little ways to to get on what's called azimuth and make sure we land where we're supposed to land. Anyway, I was completely lost in a night sky. Had no idea where I was. We were close to the border of Mexico, and um, and we were not planning on landing in Mexico. And um, uh, anyway, I followed my training and my emergency procedures, which is number one, recognize the situation. And then in this case, um, uh, monitor altitude very closely, uh, select an alternate landing area. Now at nighttime, uh, that's kind of difficult to do because you just see shades of darkness. But we know to avoid linear terrain features, which could be highways, power lines, waterways, other things that uh, would not be would not be conducive to a good a good landing. You know, one you can walk away from. And anyway, followed my training and uh, looked at the contrast in the terrain and picked a spot that was a little bit lighter and used my procedure, which is you know fifty percent brakes on your parachute, glue your legs together, and make what's called a parachute landing fall and. Um, although I had no idea where I was, I knew I was going to hit the ground in about 10 seconds looking at my altimeter. So I did the procedure and um, was able to walk away. As it turned out, I landed about three feet from a horse. I landed in a horse pasture um, right on the border with Mexico. And uh, so that's uh, there's that, that's one sea story that um, that wow. comes to mind. I'm sure you have several of them with all your your years and could fill multiple books with uh, several stories. So. What do you do for yourself? One of the things that we talk about with our mission is, you know, my goal is to help people, you know, see themselves better, see the world better uh, through what I'm able to to help provide for them. But we also have to do that for ourselves. What are some of those things that you personally do to make sure that you like, hey, this is how I see the world better and how sure. I see myself in, in that that positive light? Yeah. So. Uh, you know, there's so many things people can do for physical fitness and and mental health. And I, the really simple answer to your question is I do yoga. And, um, you know, I do everything else. I, I have a Peloton and I ride and I and I lift and I've started doing cold immersion. And I when I'm not coaching hockey, I play hockey, which is which is like super fun. But the thing that has impacted me the most in the last four years was picking up and doing yoga. And, and for me, yoga, it's physical, right? Heart rate goes up, you, you, you get a sweat and, um, you know, you, you are, you're training your heart, heart rate variability, you know, the steady increase in heart rate and the steady decrease versus this kind of jagged, irregular thing, which, which, which negatively impacts executive functioning, but it's physical. I'm stretching, you're flexing, you know, you're doing all these things that, um, especially as we get older, are, are really, really important. So yoga is the biggest thing for me. And then I would say um, playing hockey would be the the next thing that I do for me, right? Because when I'm done with either one of those things, I'm like, I am so glad I did that. Um, and in, in, in yoga, you know, because there's the breathing component in this, this you know, uh, uh, the small aspect of meditation, yoga just brings this this calm and clarity that lasts throughout the day. I, I do yoga first thing in the morning. That was a word I was going to ask you about. What does doing yoga do for you from a, how does it set your mind? Yeah. Yeah. Calm and clarity. You know, my, uh, my instructors, most of them, they'll say, you know, in the beginning of the class, 
let's set an intention for the day or, you know, what, what do you want to do today? That's positive. And, um, and, and I don't get too wrapped around, you know, the axle on that. I, I, I might just say, I'm going to smile more today. I'm going to, um, make sure that I use all the appropriate pleasantries. Thank you. Hello. How are you? Simple thing. I remind myself of those very simple things. And, and when you do that with people that in and of itself brings calm and brings clarity, you know? So, so that's kind of where I'm at. As we wrap up and thank you for spending uh, time with me today and, and sharing some of your stories as well as some of your leadership skills, tactics, um, guidelines, coaching that, that you've learned over these years. Um, what's, what's one of the things that you're like, Hey, this is one of the things I'm proudest of in my life. Uh, I would have to say um, the marriage to my wife, Julie, who is just this incredible woman um, and mother. So and and so then that would translate to uh, my children. And uh, so that's that's kind of really what I'm most proud of. And, and beyond that, I, I'm I'm proud of my career, not because of me and my career. I'm proud to have represented the United States. I'm proud to have served with incredible people you know i have learned from and been mentored by some of the most incredible people on the planet who grew up in some podunk small town you know in in the midwest just like i did what yeah. podunk small towns in the midwest <laughs> yeah. i don't know what you speak up <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so where did you uh, grow up a uh, small town called kenosha wisconsin oh, yeah. uh, which was on the news for the wrong reasons a couple of years ago when mm-hmm. you know there was there was, uh, you know, a police shooting there and became a big political issue. President Trump went there. Then candidate Biden went there. There was violence. The uptown area was burned and vandalized. And of course, that's where the young man um, shot and killed. Uh, uh, yeah, yes. shot and killed I yes. think, two people. So, well, um, yeah. I kind of lied. I've got one other thing. So. From a, you know, a dad, a coach, um, you had been led and coached and mentored a lot too. Um, any lasting piece of advice that you still kind of, you know, you wake up thinking about or that leads you through one of your days that somebody provided to you? Yeah, I would say, um, how can I be of service to others today? How can I help somebody accomplish whatever it is they're trying to accomplish? If you can put yourself aside, you know, and this is this is like, uh, uh, is it Stephen Covey or um, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Um, uh, I, I, I'm I, names and I are, are yeah. quite bad, but move on, move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, these are these are very basic lessons that have been around for a long time. But once you really pay attention to them and do them, so how can I help somebody else accomplish whatever it is they're trying to do, even in times of, I would say, high tension. Uh, between with my son or my daughter. And, you know, that does happen from time to time. Anybody who has teenagers knows that. Yeah, exactly. But, but rather (laughs) than, you know, rather than, uh, than, uh, and I'm working on this, right. So this is not perfect every time, but rather than leaders are, leaders are constantly working. They're constantly, you know, that's right. Yeah. As long as you look in the mirror and reflect, you're doing the right thing. But, but I'll say, rather than say, this is what you're going to do, or this is what you need to do. I will say, how would you like to handle that? You know, here's the situation that you have to address. How mm-hmm. how do you want to address that? And how can I help you with that? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, letting people solve their own problem, letting people answer their own question. You know, these are, again, going back to some leadership techniques. Oftentimes when people come to me with a question, I'll just ask more questions until they, uh, until they answer their own they question. So my, yes, till they have. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So my thing is, Really being of service to others, helping people uh, figure those things out. And um, and if I'm not feeling it, then, um, you know, stay out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, you've been a joy. I have like so many other questions that I could ask and and I have them written down and we're just not going to be able to get to them. So maybe cool. another time. Um, but tell our listeners how they can find your book. For sure. So it's on Amazon today. It's ironic that we had this discussion today because today is the official launch. Officially launched it today. Yes. That's right. That's right. So it's so, so it's available on Amazon. To that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's a, just a wonderful journey in and of itself. 
But uh, so the book is available on Amazon. Just Google Pizzini or Elevate Your Leadership. You know, go do the search on Amazon. Um, I also carry it in our retail shop in Virginia Beach. So if you happen to find yourself in Virginia Beach, and uh, come, come on and in. Do, and, come and fly. That's right. And you'll get the, you know, uh, the signed copy. Um, and then my website is robertpizzini.com, Robert, P-I-Z-Z-I-N-I.com. And if you take the time to go there, you'll discover way more than you'll, than you'll ever care to know about me, but it's all there. <laughs> but I, I will tell my listeners, the book is, it's very easy to read and it's got a lot of, again, easy concepts that can be mind blowing. And um, I think can be very quick quick wins of how do I be better and how do I start today to do that? So thank you so much for sharing your art and science of leadership as we look at how do we see the world better? So, and see the art of seeing clearly. So thank you so much, Bob. Thank you, Allison. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.